Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, fine. oh, the tree. You've got the tree. Uh, Not to be confused. This is not our Christmas episode. No, 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 no. It's no, just, no. yeah, we're it's just, just the season. It's the morning. We're recording in the morning. It's we a beautiful, are. nice, crisp winter day. Beautifully backlit. It's like you're in the heaven for oh. breakfast. Mint. Ooh. Okay, so I'm gonna make you some eggs. Let's uh, just do the breakfast uh, mash. It's with mashed avocado, peas, mint, feta, honey. Put over some rye bread. It'll come together on the plate. You I look very it. confused. No, that sounds but, amazing. I'm really in. Cool. So I'd like the toast to make it, please. So I, can... <laughs> so I, I might just need to look up how to use, you know, do this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This looks like, uh, you know, like the Waitrose magazine? Yeah. The cover? Oh, like thank drippy, you. Like drippy, drippy yolk, the chili flakes. Yeah. Does it have peas? That makes it sound like I'm never going to get better. Yeah, I've never thought of peas for breakfast, but actually that looks really good. And what you did with it sounds amazing. But so, give us uh, an intro to what all right. Made. Ladies the and gentlemen. For the listeners out there. For the listeners and all you watchers out there. This is also an AM edition, by the way. This it's, is an AM edition. So this is a morning edition. It was my turn to provide the food. So I thought, of course, we've got to have some breakfasty brunchy vibes. No, we had breakfast before. We had pastries and stuff. But today I think we should have more of a brunch thing. So what I've got for us here is a nice, it's vegetarian. It's uh, rye bread, lightly toasted with a little bit of, bit of butter. Then what I've got is a, a mash of um, peas, avocado, feta, honey, sea salt, chili flakes, black pepper, and lemon juice all mashed together. And then on top, a very softly, gently boiled boiled egg. A Burford Brown, of course, for its wonderful you, yolk. You nailed the soft middle because you worried. Thank we you. started peeling it. George was I like, did. oh, it's too soft. And we were like, no, no, let's go for it. Sliced it open. It yeah. was like the nectar of the gods. Oh, in thank there. you. Yeah, I no, it looks, I'm really happy. It's also, you know, uh, full disclosure, it's the first time I've prepped this ever. Yeah. So um, I, I've given it a little taste in there. James hasn't had any yet. Um, but I think also if you're a meat eater, you could jazz it up with a little, you could chuck some, some chorizo there. Yeah. Just a light bit. Um, just like serve it with crispy or even, American bacon on the or side. Or some lightly chopped um, cherry tomatoes as well. Yeah, cherry tomatoes. This is a very adaptable nice. dish. I know, yeah. peas. Who'd have thought peas? But the mixture, I think, of the peas and the mint and the avocado and the feta together. Is... Before we jump in, peas get a really bad rap. And Not I'd like me. to stand up to peas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for me. Like, I, I'm, I'm pro pea. I'm pea positive. Who, who's who's slagging off peas? People, I think the the humble garden pea has got a bad rap for being the sort of boiled veg on the side. Mm. You got kids with like fish fingers and right. chips. It's like plain. There's nothing interesting about them. They're impossible to get up with the fork. Mm. But if you've ever done like some properly seasoned like oily minty peas with lemon yeah, juice, gorgeous. olive oil, black pepper, like they they are such a great addition. Nando's do great peas. The macho peas at Nando's First are fantastic. Of all, if you're struggling to eat peas with a fork, use a spoon. Yeah. Secondly, <laughs> we're uh, all grown-ups. I, I like peas as like, the, they, they do have flavour. They're kind of sweet and mm -hmm. I, I usually steam my vegetables you see. It gives, uh, us, always gives good greater flavour, gives I more nutrients so. actually. You lose it, you don't, you lose it, you don't lose it in the water. Exactly. And uh, if you chuck in peas with something like, to contrast it like broccoli or cabbage, mm. it kind of meets in the middle. You've got this like, you know, strong flavour of those. It's a binder. Vegetables. Yeah. It brings yeah. the plate together. <laughs> But without further ado, James, please, you know, let's have go some. You've got an iced, iced coffee. I've got some tea. Let's let's see what you think. Mm. The mint straight yeah. away. It's the morning. I'm alive. I'm up. Hello. Yeah. That's nice what I to think. see you. I thought I need James to be awake for this this show. <laughs> no more sleepwalking through these shows, James. <laughs> Just want to reiterate, 
the peas are working so well. Yeah. I've never had that before, but that yeah. is really, really good. I'm going to 100% do that in the future. Avocado with mushed peas through it. Obviously, yeah. like seasoned. Uh, I actually think it's I think really it, good. I think it's the fine... Sorry for cross-talking over you just there. No, no, it's fine. I think the, the, the peas... I think all of the ingredients work in unison. The sweetness of the peas and the honey brings out the... Um, it's balanced by the sourness of the lemon juice. And, um, uh, and of course, you have that kind of avocado sort of... As the as the kind of the base in the middle, mm. and the feta, of course, has its own sort of tang. I find it very hard to find nowhere to, nowhere to find a good fish and chips in parts of London. It's all been kind of like glazed over with the Deliveroo just eat kind of. I think the culture of the fish and chip shop has slightly become sidelined in the London food scene. Mm. I still think you know your seaside towns. Your, your Brightons, your Bournemouths are defined, but not defined, but they are, it's, it's part of the, the fun is you go there and you have a fish yeah. and chips. There are some excellent fish and chip shops. I've been to a few in London, but I don't think it's now like what I think people are after when they come to the food scene in London. It's not fusiony enough. I think, I think a while ago it was part of the experience of London. Mm. Now I think it's, I, I, th- I think London scene, food scene is incredible. I think it's so much better. I, I think every five years it dramatically improves and becomes better and better and better. Because mm. it has a bad reputation, especially amongst Americans. Like, oh, English food is so bad. It's really? like, yeah, they think, oh, do you eat boiled cabbage and like horrible pub food there? I'm like, no, it's a me- metropolitan, cosmopolitan yeah. city with yeah. like decades of immigration. Of course, the food is incredible. Like any like, big city with loads of people in it. Yeah, it's pot kettle black. Excuse me. Uh, do you not eat like greasy, like yeah, deep like, fried meat for breakfast all the time? Yeah. So they, they, they think like, oh, like you have beans for breakfast. You know, you know what I always see on Twitter is pictures of um, like British Airways like airport lounges and they see the tray of baked beans and that for Americans is like the most disgusting thing which I understand because if you don't have any connection to baked beans you'd find that really gross but for us beans for breakfast is like the most normal delicious beans on toast beans with like eggs it's so normal that they like see that as like the pinnacle of English food. And I, I've heard on podcasts, Americans like, God, I'm going to London, but like, I don't know what the food's going to be like. And then they come back, like, food was amazing. Yeah. I was in markets. I had like Portuguese yeah. and Indian. Like, I know, but we do get a bad rap in, in the UK for having bad food. But I feel like if you want to go for just fish and chips, you um, you either find a good chippy mm. or it's usually um, like a Chinese takeaway that happens to do fish and chips. Right, yeah. Or it's a, like a gastro pub where you're paying like 15 quid for it. Yeah. That's where I actually think the the fish and chip market lies at the moment. It's overpriced pub, all the East End. Um, There's some good. There's some really good spots near Arsenal, near the Emirates Stadium on Holloway Road. So on the whole, you liked it. Big thumbs up. Big thumbs up. Absolutely bang on for breakfast. Beautifully seasoned. Lots of different flavors going on. Mm. Something tastes something new, which is always fun. And that rye bread is so fibrous. If that doesn't make you shit your pants, (laughs) I don't know what will. (laughs) When you're mid-blow to review and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that episode was short. <laughs> so, James, as you know, a couple of months ago, I saw this article about a play that I thought we should both go see. Because mm-hmm. The play was called The Shark is Broken, and it was essentially all about Jaws, yep. the film, right? So, I got us tickets. We went and saw it this week. And Sounded great. I was like, really up for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, what would be great is before we see this this play about Jaws, mm-hmm. which, you know, it was made in 1975, 46 years ago, why don't we re-watch the film mm. and then going into this play, we'll have a heightened sense of awareness. So we've kind of got like a Jaws double bill. Yeah. Film and then the play afterwards. 
Why don't we talk about the film first? Yeah. Would, had you, well, before rewatching it just now, yeah. ha, well, how many times had you seen it and when was the last time you'd seen it? Okay, so I'd seen Jaws quite a few times when I was a kid. Yeah. I was showing it, I think I was showing it quite young, actually. Yeah, same. I was yeah. showing it really young. Really young, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but when I went to watch it this, this time, I realized how long it had been. Mm. I knew all the beats in my head. Yeah. I knew the beginning, the middle, and everything. But when I was watching it, I was like, it's, I actually haven't seen this as an adult. Mm. I don't think I've seen it since I was like 10. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. So long time. Yeah. Long yeah. Time, yeah. So I, I'd similar, definitely seen it as a kid, far too young. I, I think I actually remember it was a bonfire night and I was so young, I was scared of fireworks. So <laughs> I went inside thinking that there would be something nice there. And what was on the TV? Jaws. <laughs> and yeah, I just like remember watching that and being scared. So rewatched it again in my late teens as an adult because, you know, obviously I'd grown up and yeah. had an appreciation for film, wanted to rewatch it. So I hadn't probably seen it for many, many years and have now just yeah. rewatched it. Um, and so, and so glad I did. Like, even yeah. though the imagery and the iconic scenes and moments yeah. from that film are, even I think, if anyone who likes film, those scenes are very much burnt into your mind. Yeah. Um, I, I think Jaws is one of those films that, even though you and I were born in the in the nineties, yeah. we feel its everlasting effect yeah. on pop culture, even in our timeline. Totally. You know what? We should give a bit of context right, to, to Jaws, right? Yeah. So, if you didn't know, Jaws is yeah. a film directed by Steven Spielberg. Came out in seventy five. Came out in seventy five. It was Spielberg's ba essentially his first film. I mean, no, he'd made a film before called Duel, which was about a uh, guy driving a car who gets in sort of like a, a weird battle where the guy's driving a massive oil truck behind him. He's kind of pursued yeah. by this oil truck. And I think he'd made a TV movie as well. But for all intents and purposes, this was his first big break. He's making it for Universal Pictures. And it was a notoriously difficult shoot. It, it was one of those things where Spielberg has since come out and talked about how he was quite naive and how, you know, it, I didn't know this. It was the first film that was ever actually shot on the ocean. Mm. And he was like, no, no, I'm going to insist on shooting it on the ocean because nothing will ever look like that. Yeah. If for some reason you haven't seen Jaws, it takes place in this beautiful American seaside town that very much heavily relies on tourism in the summer. Um, kids and teenagers who go yeah. swimming start getting picked off by a mysterious, they start dying essentially. Of yeah. course, it's a shark. Um, um, the characters, uh, one of them is like the police chief, Martin Brody, played by Roy Schneider. Scheider. Scheider, sorry. Sorry, there's you. no Schneider. No, that's right. It's yeah, Schneider. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. Um, and he starts realizing that kids are dying. He you know, through all sorts of realizes it's a shark. Yep. And they start having this huge crisis meeting. Obviously, the typical money-grubbing yeah. mayors are like, we can't shut down the resort. We have to make money. Yeah, it's very specific to this this community, actually. So, yeah. the, so the, the, where it's set is it plays a fictional place called Amity Island, mm -hmm. which is basically like Martha's Vineyard. It's it's, yeah, it's, it, it's Vineyard. on the east. Yeah, it's on the east coast, and it's near like Cape Cod and Hyannisport, and um, and you know you know very quickly that it's a it's a it's a shark attack. But uh, the the conflict on the land is that because this is a summer town, um, it profits hugely. The businesses depend on the summer crowd coming. Yeah, and they some and you know if you have a shark attack, you want to close the beaches, but the obviously the pressure from the town is we can't close the beaches because we need this money. Exactly. So then you have this pressure of this massive, to what, to what is it, to a shark is a massive amount of food yeah. <laughs> coming to the beaches. So anyway, yeah, so they, they have this, you know, big town meeting and big stuff. Big meeting, they need to basically find a way to get rid of this shark. It comes to the point where we're not going to close the beaches, so we have to basically hunt down the shark. Yeah. So they recruit the, the 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 local marine biologist played by Richard Dreyfus and yeah. a shark hunter played yeah. by Robert Shaw. And through all sorts of events, they end up going in sort of the last half of this film on a boat to hunt 
this massive shock. Yeah, and it is very much a film of two halves. So you, it really it, is. I, I definitely realised that. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was the last third, but it really is split in two. Yeah. So the first half is very much establishing how this shark works and how it's one of the biggest sharks they've ever faced. It's building the mystery. And um, the, these other characters you have. So, you know, Brody, the police chief, is very much a cool, calm, collected, trying to just... Hold everyone together. Be reasonable. Be reasonable. Be rational. The right thing by the people in the town. Hooper, who is Richard Dreyfuss's character, the, the marine biologist, is full of ideas, full of science, full of knowledge. Yeah. But he's also kind of a little bit inept at being in this world. He's not. He's not. He hasn't got the masculinity of Brody. Bookie, bookie scientist. He's bookie. He's 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 rich as well. He's entitled. Yeah. So he has all the equipment, but he hasn't doesn't have the physicality that living in a marine life. Uh, uh, exists and then to c- contrast that you have Quinn played by Robert Shaw who is this shark hunter squinty seafarer squinty yeah you know he, he, he's a couple of notches down from going Arr! yeah he um, walk into his shop and he's got literal jaws of sharks yes. he's hunted hanging on the yeah. walls and it, it's made of wood and there's hooks and fishing yeah. rods everywhere he's a real sort of and it, and rusty shipman and it's a very famous entrance to this character because you have this very sort of like high pitched town meeting yes. where everyone's hysterical and Brody's classic I think now a true Oh, yeah, walking yeah. into the meeting and, and Brody's trying to calm everyone down and then you just hear these nails being scratched yeah. down the chalkboard and everyone turns around and it's Quint and he says you know something like I'll hunt that chalk for you it looks like you got a 60 even a 20 footer 20 footer I'll hunt it for you yeah it'll be a big 10 grand for the thing anyway yeah. and um Fantastic. He puts himself forward to be the man right, kill to shark. kill the shark. However, obviously the town aren't ready to do that yet. But anyway, after it gets to a point, as you said, where the shark attacks are so frequent and so big in some fantastic scenes that they agree to go out on Quint's boat. And it then in the second half of the film, it shrinks down to being this boat literally on the ocean. It's it's Brody, it's Hooper, it's Quint to hunt the shark. Yeah. And like, again, you know, we sort of touched on it. It's, 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 it's relevance in pop culture, but I think, you know, it, it has, it has defined and, and basically put to, to, to vision the fear, the primal fear of sharks. And I think escalated everyone's fear of the sea. Oh, absolutely. I've heard that from the release of that film, people were genuinely terrified to go swimming again. Like there were reviews saying, I'll never go in the sea again. Like it really did touch on like a primal fear that we all have of the, the unknown. What's that? I think it's um, thalassophobia, which is the fear of the dark ocean or like what lies beneath. Oh yeah. You know, if you've ever been like far out to sea and you go swimming and you look down and you're feet are just dangling and it just yeah. fades into oh, darkness yeah. that that idea that there's something dark lurking mm. below that can just come of, up and yeah. there's something wonderful to like discuss in the play about what the sea and like the unknown represents like yeah. the void of subconscious and mm. death and like mm. ever like blind nature just not caring about what's yeah. happening um so there is that i mean so obviously we know this film was basically at its time thought of to be the pinnacle summer blockbuster this was like pushed and marketed yeah. in a way that had never really been done yeah before. I, w- I would just say this so if anyone wants a, if anyone wants some homework reading to go home after this there's a really good book by a film critic called tom sean who wrote um a, a film was called blockbuster how the jaws and jedi generation built hollywood basically yes. and it was like a riposte to this other very famous book about the film industry called easy riders raging bulls which peter biskin had written about like the american new wave and that film um, that book which is really interesting about the boom in american independent cinema in the 70s was great but also it kind of made this like oh it lamented about how the blockbuster had you know um, taken over and, and trampled over all creativity and artistry but what Tom Sean's book was saying is like, well, actually, um, there was a lot of innovation happening in the blockbuster and it got, you know, he traces the blockbuster from Jaws and Star Wars up to the point where Lord of the Rings is winning the Oscars in yeah. 2003. 
really interesting book. Jaws is a like B movie. But, jo- concept, but Jaws, isn't it? this this was a real watershed moment for it. It, it did. Um, create the modern blockbuster it was that idea of like oh it's a summer release yeah. tied to a, a day of the year and um i think you know affected the way that people perceive the release calendar and that and then star wars two years later completely changed the way films were released yeah anyway so it was it was the highest grossing film until the release of star wars in 77 right so like straight away yeah. it made loads of money um yeah budget of this film was four million dollars but the picture wound up costing nine yeah so that is like horrendously yep. over budget i mean we'll get into what this what this play that we saw really goes on is the yeah. struggles they had actually shooting on the ocean for obvious yeah. reasons um, when spielberg was originally getting attached to shoot this film he was 26 so that's younger than us he was talking about directing oh, uh, a multi-million dollar film on the atlantic ocean yeah. and he you know he, he's uh, to this day he's talked about how naive and uh, you know, mm. inexperienced he was. And he, he says, I-, I could have shot the movie in a tank or even in a protected lake somewhere, but it would have not looked the same. Yeah. I was naive about the ocean. Basically, I was pretty about naive about Mother Nature and the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he can conquer the elements was foolhardy. But I was too young to know I was yeah. being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic Ocean and not in a North Hollywood yeah. tank. But I would say this is one of those examples where that this film is like a perfect accident. Yes. Because for all of those reasons, this film should have failed. Yeah. But yet created a weird catalyst where for all of those reasons the film works for example the shark what that's why the play is called the shark is broken bruce they called the shark the mechanical shark kept breaking down and they they explain in the play why you know it gets something to do with the you know the the, the literal science behind and yeah, the, the use of salt water and but um that meant that for most of the film you don't see the shark and that is a hundred that's perfect you, yeah you, you, don't, you don't see the uh, you know the, the the first time you see the shark Fully, I think, is when they're on the boat. On the boat, yeah. And there's that shot of when... You see a dorsal fin early on, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, but when you, it's when the mouth comes out and then Roy Scheider reacts, and that's when he says... It's that shot where he's looking into camera. Yeah. It's like fa- famous shot. Yeah, and he says, come um, chop on some of this shit. Yeah, and it comes out, and then sure. he says, we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. Um, but until then, you're just... It's just... Um, you only know about the threat of the shark from how it's perceived by the people it's affecting. So it'll be, a, you know, a, a, a tremor on land or, or uh, someone's boat getting knocked. And that... It's perfect. I mean, that, 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 that's how you build tension and suspense. So you know how we, when we were talking about alien aliens and yeah. how that, what's great about those is that you don't show the monster yeah. until the very end. And like, we talked about this film just now, like not revealing its monster. Yeah. That That is a byproduct of not out of choice. It was technical limitations yeah. that they yeah. literally couldn't show the shark. And Steven Spielberg, again, to quote him, he said, the shark not working was a godsend. Yeah. It made me become more like Alfred Hitchcock than yes. Ray Harryhausen. Yes. The acting became crucial for making audiences believe yes. in such a big shark. Yeah. Um, the more fake the shark looked in the water, the more my anxiety told me to heighten the naturalism of the performances. Yes. So actually like, that that whole element yeah. is designed by not being able to just digitally CG a shark yeah. under the water. Like that's what gave birth to that suspense. And also, it's clever because really, look, an audience knows what a shark looks like. Yes, and it, the, the film is called Jaws, and the yeah. shark is on the poster. The shark is on okay? the po- so poster. So in a way, of course, you don't need to show the shark for the first bit. We all know what we're dealing with yeah. here. But it is true that that is such a, a winning element, and the acting. Well, I mean, the performances really do hide it. You have in. The, I think. Uh, the first half of the film is like an exercise in such well-executed, um, tight, uh, direct filmmaking that Spielberg, like, you, we were watching this and you're like, yeah, I can tell that Spielberg is going to go on and have decades of illustrious filmmaking. Yeah. But in the second half, 
I think it's so resourceful and, and economical. That's what it, for a film that went over budget by yeah. more than one hundred percent of its budget. It is so economical with with how it uses uh, its time with the audience. And like in that second half, just the three of them, these three very different types of masculinity on this boat. No one's really the clear lead. Mm. Um, Which they go into. And, and and yeah, and and I mean, for me, there's a wonderful moment where, again, we haven't seen the shark yet. And on the boat, Hooper's driving the boat, and uh, Brody is feeding the the the, the chum, like guts, yeah, into, into the into the sea. Chum, yeah. And Quint is in the seat with the giant fishing rod that's like metallic, and it's like oh, bolted so up. Good. And you just hear, yeah, because the line's starting to catch. Line's starting to catch. And, and, and he is a shot where his eyes are forward, and he hears the click, and his eyes go to the camera, yeah. and just on the rod. And, and he doesn't. Seat. He very slowly. And this is a wonderful way of building tension. He so good. Clips. Clips himself into the chair. Yeah, clips the clips boat. Over, yeah. Straps his feet into yeah. the boat. So, like it's literally fantastic. bolts himself down, puts the fishing rod like into its own little bolt thing. Yeah. And then he's like, okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, and the, it all comes, to, and then it all comes together. Ta- Tarantino was oh, talking about the, the tension of this movie and he said it's like an ever, ever stretching rubber band. Oh, that's that just an doesn't, excellent description. Yeah. It really is. And then you have these moments of in- interiority where they're literally inside the boat at night and uh, for want of a better word, having this dick measuring contest, which yeah. again is not really, Brody's not really involved because again, Brody is the clear eyed one who's just wanting to kill the shark. Brody, yeah. hey, Brody's the one in this film who hates the ocean. I always forget that. Mm. Brody ne- doesn't, that's why Brody doesn't drive the boat. He hates the ocean. He just wants to kill the shark, right? But Hooper obviously has dealt with sharks and coincidental sharks and they start having this dick measuring contest where they compare their scars and it builds and builds and builds and uh, until... Uh, Hooper says, what about that one there on you? And, and Quint says, that's a tattoo, you know, rubbed out tattoo. He says, of what? He says, it's the USS Indianapolis. And then there's this silence in the room. And, and Hooper says, you're on the Indianapolis? And then what begins is essentially one of the, you know, greatest, most famous like film monologues in, in you know, in pop culture, mm. up there with like the tears and rain in, in Blade Runner. And Robert Shaw delivers this fantastic monologue about why Quint hates sharks and his experience on the Indianapolis. It's a weird, real, like, slow the film down R- movement, focusing Yeah, really tight, tight on his... No, there's, like, one little lamp above the, yeah. the, that's only lighting It's them. eerie. And, and everyone, including the audience, so the, act- the actors really feel them, like, lean in to listen. Mm. And then everyone, you as well, you're like... Again, Leaning. economical. You don't need to do that with big thrills. You do it with somebody telling... Because you've already built the tension of why Quint is like this. Yeah. And, you know, he's such a master at those words, delivering the bum, the Hiroshima bum, on the island of Tahiti. Yeah. Two torpedoes. Sorry, it's just <laughs> yeah. it's so tempting to go into the whole now, thing. Now, like, we'll get into that, we'll get into the play, so, what it focuses yeah. on like, in a moment. But, but like, that, that, yeah. that, that scene, all that speech story, like, you'll never see it again. Yeah. And also, like, coming onto this play, which was all about the huge difficulties yeah. that, that this that this film had filming. And, you know, th- there were reports of long days where the crew would yeah. come out of days, literally spent at sea, ravaged and sunblown. This is a quote, windblown and covered with salt water. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, as we said before, this was the first film to ever uh, actually shoot on the ocean. Yeah. Um, they had several delays with unwanted sailboats drifting into frame, yeah. cameras getting soaked. The actual orca began to sink with the actors on board. That's one of the things. <laughs> the orca's um, the boat. Apparently. We talked yeah. about the prop sharks that they use. So they frequently malfu- malfunction yeah. owing to a series of problems, including obviously bad weather, um, pneumatic hoses taking on salt water, frames, camera frames ca- fracturing due to water resistance, corroding skin um so wow. they actually built the shark with this non-absorbent neoprene foam that made up the sharks but actually 
it soaked up all the water, which caused the sharks to balloon in size, oh just God. making them unusable. Um, uh, the shark kept getting tangled in seaweed. Um, Spielberg has later calculated that during the 12-hour daily work schedule, on average, only four hours were spent actually filming. Wow. Um, the screenwriter Gottlieb was nearly decapitated by the boat's propellers. <gasps> Dreyfus was almost imprisoned in that steel cage and they couldn't get him out. <gasps> um, actors were frequently seasick. Um, Shaw also fled to Calendar wherever he could for tax problems, yeah. which they kind of got into yeah. the play. The actors were engaging in binge drinking and developed a grudge against Dreyfus. Yeah. He was getting rave reviews for his performance in Duddy Kravitz, which again, the yeah. place goes into. Um, yeah, and then the editor who rarely didn't have editors edited by Werner Fields rarely had material to actually work with during principal photography because they just they would shoot five this is Spielberg quote five scenes in a good day three on an average day and none in a bad day so they would sometimes get up yeah. set up actors would be sitting around all yeah. day and they just straight up wouldn't be able to shoot because it's a boat in the background Something's gone this, wrong. This is what I find so interesting. If this film hadn't worked, if Spielberg hadn't been as good as a filmmaker as he is, which he is, I mean, we yeah. forget, there's a reason he's had a career as long as he has because he's a fantastic filmmaker. That would have been his last film. So amazing quote again. Yeah. Um, Although principal photography was scheduled to take 55 days, it did not wrap until October 6, 1974, after 159 days. Jesus Christ. And when Spielberg was reflecting on... I love getting all these quotes, they're brilliant. When he was reflecting on the, the shoot, he said, I thought my career as a filmmaker was over. I'd heard rumours that I would never work again because of the final... Uh, because no one had ever taken a film 100 days over schedule. Wow. Um, and, you know, th and this is a famous thing now. That, so Spielberg wasn't actually present for the shooting of the final scene in which the shark explodes. Yeah. Because Spoiler. Thought, yeah, oh, Sorry, because he believed that the crew were going to throw him into the sea when <laughs> yeah. that happened. And to this day, Spielberg is never around for the final day, the final shot of his films. Really? As a tradition. Huh. Yeah. So he, so he didn't want to do it because I think the sentiment of the crew was, was that so bad. So you get a mutiny. And now to this day, he does a film, he's not there for the final shot. Look, spoiler, I mean, sorry for spoiling the film, but yeah, it's been about it's 46, it's been I mean, out for 46 yeah, they, years. They oh, what do you think is going to happen at the end? I would just say, um, before we go on to about the play, is yeah. that Peter Benchley, who I believe wrote the novel of, yes. the, of the play, uh, of the book, sorry, wrote the novel of yes, Jaws. Yes, the novel, which yeah, turned over very quickly. Which um, he, I think years later, came out and was like, he really felt very guilty because of the amount of like shark killing and shark murders and this vendetta that yeah. people, this fear of people that have against sharks seems like the like environmental ecological we're talking about like the, damage the, the the influence on on people's mindset it's a so, huge hate film against it's, it's, sharks it's, it's often uh, put in the same category of the exorcist as having had such a profound sense of fear impacted mm. on its audience visceral visceral yeah. fear um yeah and you know i was talking about thalassophobia like the fear of the ocean yeah. that poster with the teeth and the jaws looking up that is what? like thalassophobia epitomized in a yeah. picture i love that poster for its simplicity it's actually it's, an, it's a yeah. beautiful bit of like poster design woman like, yeah. sleeping in the sod and then the dark the dark fade from the oh. bottom up to the shark and also you know John Williams's iconic score iconic score. I, I mean all these little things you realise you're, you're dealing with what could that, that I think was what stood out to me when I rewatched it is that it could have been such a silly film it could have been really silly yeah. but it was dealt with such artistry uh, you know there was clearly such artists at work Spielberg even though he's out of his depth yep. was an artist yes um, the script is great the performances are great John Williams is great all of these things just happen to come together when uh, when John Williams presented Spielberg with a score he thought it was a joke in the beginning really and then he was like oh no no this is great ah. <laughs> obviously yeah but I think I think that that can sometimes happen when you're under pressure on a film it forces you to perform your very best because mm. you're, you're up against it and the results show. Just, anyway, just yeah. one last thing before we go into sure. the play and what it's about. Obviously, we talked about how you know Spielberg thought 
his career was over. Yeah. It had been so over budget. Um, but, you know, Jaws opened to 409 theaters with a record $7 million weekend and grossed $21 million in its first 10 days. So it completely recouped its yeah. production costs. It grossed $100 million in its first 59 days. This is in the 70s. Like, that is insane. Yeah. Um, and then in just 78 days, it overtook The Godfather as the highest grossing film in the North American box wow. office. So incredibly successful. Won three Academy Awards, uh, best film editing, best dramatic score, uh, best sound, uh, and then nominated for best picture, but losing to One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest that year. Fair so enough. there you go. So yeah, so obviously went on to be huge yeah. success. Multiple sequels, which are nowhere near as good. Yeah. But that is, I think, in a nutshell, Jaws. Jaws. Okay, so that brings us to The Shark is Broken. And yes. and let's explain this and why, why I wanted to, to yeah. watch it. So... For context, this play is written by Robert Shaw's son, Ian Shaw, right? And uh, it is about those three actors, they're the only three actors in the play, mm -hmm. on the Orca, which is the boat in Jaws, sitting around, sh shooting the shit between, between the takes. long breaks between takes. And um, in this play, the way it presents the characters is you have Robert Shaw, who's an English actor, uh, a very prestigious classically trained thespian. Thesp a thespian is the right to say um of that era which hard drinking um very passionate tough thespian actor meanwhile you have roy scheider who again is a little bit of a middleman in this mm. um and then you have richard dreyfus who is this energetic plucky young upstart um who's very much of the new hollywood era nervous energy nervous energy but also incredibly anxious and incredibly neurotic and the film really is a dichotomy between those two with Brody in the middle. And um, and so that's an interesting context. So we immediately thought, well, well, we have to go see this. There is, I think I should say at this point that before we could talk into the play about it and what we thought about it, we had a slight, the only slight disappointment with when we saw it is that Ian Shaw, who is Robert Shaw's son, plays Robert Shaw in this play. Yeah. And he looks a lot like Robert Shaw. And one of the big draws for me for seeing this play was like, I want, I can't wait to see an actor play Playing his father, father. Yeah. in this tribute to him in, the, in this play. Sadly, movie. when we saw it, um, Rob, um, Ian Shaw was away. So we had the understudy who was great. great. Don't, don't get me yeah. wrong. Nothing wrong with an understudy. I respect it. But it did mean that extra meta, meta textuality to the, to that play had kind of been lost. And it did take me 10 minutes to sort of accept that that had, had gone. Because I don't think you would know this, but I, and I only know this from doing, you know, reading around the play beforehand, but Robert Shaw died two years after filming Jaws. No, it didn't. He died, that. I think he was 49 or maybe just 50. Wow. And that's why the film is quite poignant because it's written by his son. And in it, Robert Shaw is talking about how Robert Shaw's father died when he was very young. Right. And Robert Shaw talks about, the character of Robert Shaw in this play talks about, you know, I wonder if I'll outlive him. I wonder if I'll get to that point. So Ian Shaw, I think, was only about eight. And Ian, Ian Shaw now is the same age that Robert Shaw was when he died. Wow. So there's all these poignancy that sadly Huge. we didn't get to see because he, he wasn't involved. But... That's just the, the, the context. So it's, you know, it's set, you literally have the staging was the cross section of the orca, yeah. like sliced in half. Yeah. You know, you could see one half and then it's open to the audience. There's this sort of water effect, yeah. lighting smoke on the side. Yeah. And they got this wonderful uh, curved panoramic screen behind yeah. them, which is the horizon of just yeah. the water. And every so often there's a little sailboat that goes by and they have yeah. to cart, but it's just the water and that that's it in yeah. terms of staging. The rest is a real lock-in. And then you just, all you hear is the occasional voice of a, a very good Steven Spielberg impression. Yeah. Uh, could you actually come down for that? Yeah. Um, and You never see him, but he's just a voice. He's just stage. a voice. And you have, you know, Robert Shaw's at a very interesting point. The character is as dramatically is at an interesting point in this because he is realizing, you know, 
they're, well, they were all realizing that Hollywood's changing. And, yes. uh, and this perhaps is a new kind of film. And, uh, uh, sorry, go on. You know, it's Robert, Robert Shaw's kind of thinking, is this, what kind of film am I in here? And, and Richard Dravis is conversely thinking, this is not the kind of film I thought I'd be in as an actor. Like, is this really going to make our names? And um, I will actually say at this point that I think that uh, the, you have to accept that the pre- presentation of these characters are not direct impressions of the of the actors i think that they, they aren't very much interpretations and i actually think the film um, i think the film kind of film sorry the play almost kind of misunderstands roy scheider a little bit i mean yes they put him as this middleman but the way he's presented and the way he was performing in the play i felt like i don't i don't know roy scheider but i've seen other films with him in and i've seen interviews with him and i thought he was a much more cool slightly probably uh, cooler, masculine kind of guy than, than in this, he was almost a little bit like of a dork. They played him quite dorky, sure. reading his newspaper and, oh, actually, I think this. But actually, Roy Scheider was much more like this. Mm. He was much cooler. So that had kind of been lost. And uh, Richard Dreyfus is like all energy and all, 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 all mania. However, that's the context of the play. Um, I think we both had a kind of good time, didn't we? Yeah, I, I think I think what I found really interesting overall about that film is that, uh, as you said, it's three actors trying to understand about Hollywood and the industry in the world yeah. and how it's changing. And they're also trying to understand what this film is. And there's this whole idea, because I think a lot of people have which what we're doing literally right now, which is over-intellectualizing a great film that maybe yeah. is just about, about a shark. shark. Yeah. And there's this whole debate where like, no, no, it's about the subconscious primal fear and the unknown and humanity's quest to overcome. And then there's one point where he just goes, no, it's about a damn shark. Yeah, it's yeah. about a shark, it's yeah. a summer blockbuster. And it, you know, I think all those answers are right. But what I find really interesting, I think anytime uh, art, or maybe if you see an old interview, when you try and see people understand where they're at in pop culture the moment they're in it mm. and i think of all the times we try and intellectualize our own time period yeah. and it's one of those impossible things to do when you're living in a time period you can't quite see the forest for the trees yeah. and you know as, i think as you get older you look back i think you know now i'm in my 20s like older but like i can now look back to when i was 10 and be like yeah i that was a period in time yes, yeah. and i can now see that for what it is but at the time i didn't of really course, know yeah. so them talking about what the film is going to do and how well it's going to go and the nature of cinema and how everything's going to be sequelized you, i loved seeing little nuggets of how they were right but yeah. also how they were wrong mm-hmm. and i think that's always a really interesting to see people try and understand and intellectualize where they're at in time yeah that i find really interesting yeah because we're do always you know doing there's that. quite a lot of uh, wink, wink, no, no, yeah. knowing jokes to there the audience about like, you know, oh, uh, you know, at one point Roy Scheider says, well, I'll, if there's a f- sequel to this film, I'll never be in it. <laughs> Biggest wink, laugh, wink. I think. Yeah, yeah, ha, ha. And, you know, they talk about Richard Nixon. And there they are like say, four, three, four sequels to Jaws or something? Three sequels? Yeah, it's four, yeah, four. four. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's a bit where they talk about Richard Nixon and uh, Roy Scheider says, oh, I, you know, there'll never be a more corrupt president than there is now. Yeah. Lots of stuff yeah. is like, ha, ha. And which actually, I actually thought the, f- uh, the play was a lot more um, fun and funny than I expected. I expected it to be uglier. I thought it was going to be, when I heard about yeah. this feud that they had with um, the actors on set, I, I, I thought it was going to be like, oh, this is quite uncomfortable. Because I, in reading about the play, Ian Shaw said that, you know, he um, he had spoken to, he'd actually met Richard Dreyfus later on in life and said, oh, um, I, you know, I worked with Robert Shaw. And Richard Dreyfus almost had like a visceral response and was like, oh God, yeah, you know, you, you know, off, off stage, off camera, you know, when we weren't shooting, your dad was like an incredible person. It was amazing, very right. kind, very sweet. But when we were on set, you know, he was a real tyrant. He was, really, you know, yeah. and like he really struggled with that. And um, and I think he's talked about that in the documentary as well. So I thought I was going to see a real of ugliness, but instead, it's 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 a bit more 
fun and and uh, and compassionate, really, which is fine. It, I, I haven't got a problem with that. And it's quite nice and short for a play. It's an hour yes. and a half, no interval, just all the way through, yeah. keeps you locked in. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that was a good amount of time to keep me locked in that room. Yeah. And it's not it's not one scene. Like, it does have little... It does take place oh, over yeah. a few days and it sort of fades into black a couple of times. Yeah, and it breaks into these actually just, like, scenes that are just tableaus. It just mm. shows them um, sitting, not speaking you know, of of just to capture how long they've been on this boat. So, for example, you'll fade up and Dreyfus will be playing cards inside. Shida will be on, the, the, yeah, sitting yeah. on the deck. And, and Quint, sorry, Quint, Shaw will be on the, the boat trying to, like, you know, balance against the waves. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of, um, like, addict, like, dealt a lot with addiction and alcohol and... Yeah. Um, panic attacks and anxiety. Lots of panic yeah. attacks. And, you know, he revealed he was, uh, I can't remember his name, revealed he was taking cocaine throughout some of the shoots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. Again, like, nervy, angsty yeah. actor. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I, I came out of that thinking, God, I'd love to see that same... Uh, approach or template applied to loads of other yeah. films because I bet yeah. there are so many incredible stories of people who didn't get on yeah, amazing totally. things that happened between when the cameras were rolling yeah um, it's just a great it's a great lock-in and, and just to circle back to that circle back yeah. what a horrible phrase I'm so corporate um, <laughs> just to go back <laughs> we to synergize our yeah. portfolios when we're talking really... about that very famous monologue the, the play knowing oh, that under, yeah. the, the play understands that that importance of that scene within pop culture and within people's perception of that film so what they kind of break it down, they approach that monologue three times. And I think it's okay to, to, to talk well, about it. Well, it was sort of being rewritten. Yeah, that's on, it. So the first set, time the monologue it? is mentioned, Robert Shaw's, again, the character of Robert Shaw, is trying saying, to get it out. It's, it's sort of saying, out. this is so poorly written, this is rubbish, but let me have a crack at it. Because there's all this stuff in it how Robert Shaw really wants to be a writer, really wants to be a yes. novelist, not an actor. Um, and he just found it as a distraction. So he says, let me have a crack at it. And then there's a second time where he has a go at it, but he you know, is under the influence. He's just drunk, isn't he? And, and, and he's really struggling against it. It's very sad. And then I don't, I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but the, the play concludes and then, the, but it then ends properly with this epilogue where you see it. In yeah. Soul. Quint delivers the monologue as it is in the film. And in the context of a theater, it is great because everyone Fantastic. knows that and everyone loves hearing it. And then what they did is their lovely little touch is they, had a shooting star come across the, the background, yes. which is, of course is famous because in Jaws, they capture a shooting star by accident. Isn't it? It's just, they're just shooting it out on the ocean in the middle of the night and a shooting star goes by Roy Scheider's head. So, um, yeah, really wonderful play. I really, I really, I really and it really, I'm, I'm glad we saw the film beforehand to heighten our perception of the, of the play. So glad and now, and also now the play informs my perception of the of the film. Yeah, really strongly recommend. It's playing at the Ambassador's Theatre until... I think it's to the end of January. They so might, I think they might have even extended their run, but definitely go see definitely it. Definitely go see it. And um, and again, just to, just so we're clear for the record, not a problem with the understudy. Absolute props to the yeah, guy. He was fantastic. very good. Very, very good. The whole cast is very good. And I'll, I'll never... I knew that was a great speech, but I'll never uh, hear that speech the same way again. No. Now I've heard it yes. dissected in that way yeah. and what went into it. And I'll never, I don't think I'll ever see that film in the same way. Like, no, as soon as they go no. onto the boat, I'll be yeah. thinking about those relationships yeah. and how sort of fractured they were. And of course, if you haven't seen Jaws, that's 46 years old. What have you been oh, doing? Jaws, is, see Jaws, I know like it still has that B-movie blockbuster yeah. like pulpiness to it, but... It, it, it does really hold yeah. up as a fantastic, like, like, just watch at home. It's like we've talked about before. Uh, we keep talking about this every week, but Aliens, right? Yeah. The, which sounds like the most generic mm. B-movie yes, stuff, but it's so actually true. so executed. Jaws is the same thing. Jaws is a really, really good film. Okay, George, so yeah. it is December. We're coming to the end of 2021. I'd say, you know, it, it's been a bit of a recovery year in terms of films yeah. and the cinema. We've had to yeah. sort of, there's a lot of delayed films that have come out. Yeesh. It has definitely come to the end of the year. But I thought while we're coming to the end, let's have a quick look 
at 2022. Okay. And a lot of delayed films. Yep. And I just thought I'd throw some at you. Great. And we could just say, yes, no, hate it, can't wait. Okay. Trailer looks terrible, trailer looks great. Okay. Look, we live in a comic book era, so there just are a lot of comic book films. Sure. And, so, and I'm that's a just, comic book girl. Yeah. So kind of a weird one to start, because I don't know what you think about these films. But in January, we've got Scream 2022. Right, look, uh, I don't know why they keep making Scream films. <laughs> Here we okay, go, I'm yeah. very confused. Look, With uh, David Arquette and Corny Cox are apparently returning. So that's technically Scream 5, okay? Are you sure? Yeah, not yeah. more. No, no. So there's Scream 1, which I've... Scream. It's the only, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's the only Scream I've seen. And it is a really good film. Again, like we were talking about with Jaws. Love Scream. Looks really generic, but it's actually really... Sleepover classic. It's, it's very funny. It's yes. very funny and it's very subversive. Doesn't take itself too seriously. Doesn't take itself too because it's very subversive about the horror genre and it's poking a lot of fun whilst also delivering the chills of a horror film. And still on Halloween today, I see kids yeah. in scream masks still. But like when people talk about scream, they're like, oh, that's just like a straightforward horror film. And I'm like, well, no. I mean, that opening scene with Drew Barrymore on the yeah. phone, what, iconic. What's what, your favorite yeah. scary But movie. it's also very funny and subversive. So yeah, yeah I like, like scream. Didn't see scream too. I haven't seen Scream 3. I think I've seen Scream 4 came out in 2010, I think. Yes, I've seen that. Like, years later. Then they made two seasons of it on Netflix, do you remember? Oh, God, I forgot about that. And now it's coming back. I'm just like, let it die. You know know when it's going on for a long time, when they stop numbering it and they just call it Scream Brackets Year of Release? Right, like yeah. with the Halloween, the they just do. They just sort of go. Uh, it's not six because you don't want to need to have seen the five. Yeah. But it's so I'm, there. I'm not that interested. Won't see it, and I find it quite depressing. Another January release coming out, Morbius, which we've right. mentioned before. We're talking about Jared Leto today. So this is a uh, superhero Sony verse, Sony verse of Marvel's c- characters, with, kind of tied in, but kind of not. Yeah, where know. he plays a vampire essentially. It's basically Batman without being Batman. It's, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, bitten by a yeah, bat. Yeah, I think I've not seen it, but it looks Look, like that. It looks like the most generic 2003 it's, superhero film. It's got the same color palette as Van Helsing. Yes. We, we have <laughs> talked about this before. About, yeah. But it really does look yeah. like a film I could not could, be And I've said this before. There's a reason that it's out in January. That's a dumping ground. Yeah, dumping That's just ground. like, let it out. Next. The trailer for oh, that film came out in like January 2020. Yeah, so it sat ago. around for a while. I was like, oh, fuck is Morbius. Yeah, exactly. But here we are. We're right. getting it. Um, in February, again, don't know how you feel about this, but... Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg are starring in the Uncharted movie. Right, based on the popular PlayStation series. Based on my incredibly beloved Uncharted series, which is very sacred to me. Before I go into it, do do you have any stake in this? I I, I played Uncharted 3, Drake's Deception. Deception. Um, I very much enjoyed it for context. These for, these games are very much informed by like the Indiana Jones kind of treasure hunting across. The, and, and the game format was very different. So Uncharted is from Tomb Raider, what Tomb Raider is from Indiana Jones. Right. So that's go. like the DNA yeah. track for you. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I know they've been talking about making a film for like ever. A long time. Um, uh, so hang on, who's playing Drake then? So this is what's really annoying is that Nathan Drake, A, like these are fantastic video games, which I think, uh, made by the studio called Naughty Dog, it also made The Last of Us, which is getting its own HBO show, which we'll talk about in a few months whenever it sure. comes out. But basically, these games have pretty much are the summer blockbuster films of games, yeah. and they really do rep. At the time they released, they represented the pinnacle of cinematic storytelling. Yeah, in it was video very games. cinematic. Incredible. Uncharted One now looks slightly dated, but from two, three, and four, they are as I think the drama in those games, especially four, is as good as any film in yeah. terms of like the, the the way the characters look, the writing. It really is like super super fun. Nathan Drake is a character in his, I would say, from his 30s to his late uh, mid-40s in those games. He's like a grown adult. Yeah. 
And in those games, you, there are segments where he's a teenager. You go yeah. back and learn about his life. And then he's got this older character who's with him. He's like a cigar-wielding Sully. Cigar right? yeah. Sully. So for a long time, this, this film has been in development, pre-production hell for years. Yeah, like yeah. Ever since I think the second game came out, they were trying to develop a, yeah. a film for it. And originally, Mark Wahlberg was attached to play Nathan Drake, right. which kind of makes a lot of sense. Like I get it for the age and the kind of yeah. actor. It really made sense. And that film, for whatever reasons, over the years has just gained directors, lost directors, yeah. it's been a mess. And this new version came up and the first announcement was that Mark Wahlberg was attached to play Sully, right. who is in his late 60s, 70s, yeah. with a mustache, like, right, and he, like he talks like this, ah, yeah. Nate, we gotta get the treasure. Well, it's more of a William Hurt kind of, the, yes. uh, Thunderbolt Ross kind of guy. Yeah, yeah like old, old sort of like, and he's a real role model for, for yeah. Drake. And it made no sense to have what Mark Wahlberg cast yeah, as sure. that character. And then you had Tom Holland cast as Nathan Drake. Right. And I, I like Tom Holland. I have no problem with it. But in the lead up to this trailer coming out, Tom Holland has come out in a couple of interviews and said, basically, in, in so many words, he doesn't think he did a very good job with this film. Oh. He talked a lot. I think I don't, his rough quote was, I learned a lot doing Uncharted. I did a lot of posing and trying to look good for the camera, which I realize now is a huge mistake. I need to focus on the performance, and I'm not sure. Oh. He basically, like, in, without saying it, said he didn't do a very good job. Oh. The video Tom. game movie is like very cursed it has a huge black they've not been yeah, able to make never, good there's never been a good video game movie we won't go it's probably for another section but they've never yeah. done it anyway i saw this trailer and i thought oh, i really hope they don't taint this because they've taken so many scenes from like all yeah. of the games and trying to like put it into this younger version of no, nathan no, drake no, and i'm kind of just no. like oh please be good but i don't want it to ruin yeah. uncharted sacred to me it really is okay. i have special well, memories look, of it. i i yeah I, I hope they put it off but i i'm I gonna see it but i, think I don't i don't hold up high uh, high hopes I, I don't have that much skin in the game either uh, coming into March, The Batman. We had already talked about it. Oh yes, I'm super excited. Yes, for I'm it. excited to see that. Really I do. I feel a little bit nervous that it looks a little bit messy, but I will see it. I will. I'm, I'm interested in that. I do feel like it's got a bit more ideas behind it than just simply rebooting the character. Um, the guy emo, who super it, trendy. Matt Reeves did the Planet of the Apes films, the new ones, which I quite enjoyed. Um, yeah, see what we got. Lovely. Um, into May, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Look, I'm a sucker for superhero films when they're all like crazy and psychedelic and things falling out of skies I think and I stuff. I want to see more, you know, like the tessellation building, yeah. trippy effects, yeah. falling. Uh, yeah. I'm interested to see where from Spider-Man, which we're going to see soon, yep. where Doctor Strange is and all that mess yeah. into it. Let's get let's lean let's lean on the Strange a little bit. I mean, they've been building up the multiverse for a long time. I'm just like, let's go for it. Let's Why not? go for I'm it. I'm ready. And it's Multiverse of Madness, you know, you're in. Yeah. Uh, straight into May. One more thing. Yes. Actually, sorry, on the Multiverse of Madness, Doctor Strange thing. I think it's going to be like that episode of the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror where do you know they keep where Ho Homer keeps falling through different parallel universes. Oh, I don't know. He travel he like gets a time machine. It's like a toaster. It takes him back to the like dinosaur age. Oh, I don't, and, and like first moment. of all, he tries not to touch anything, and then he sits on a bug, and it just changes everything. <laughs> then he goes back again. Then he like it's oh, very I good. Need to watch that. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, coming into May, this is funny because we haven't seen the original Top Gun Maverick. We haven't seen the original, but I've seen the trailer and it looks very good. It's got that classic Tom Cruise brand thing now, which is that it's very physical, very tactile, very yes. like, you know, um, if we're going to fly a jet, we're going to have a camera strapped to the jet and it's going to be going yeah. doing what loops and stuff. No, and actually, no, like strap an IMAX camera to yeah, a plane. That, that tactility I kind of appreciate. And I am interested in watching where the Tom Cruise brand continues to grow. And, and yeah. you know, just like, I'm just curious. Um, I think He's still that, great, Tom Cruise. I think also... The way that those films are directed now can be really thrilling. Um, I will see the original before I. Yeah, see we should see, do. We, a, do we should do a watch. I think. Uh, next up in June, we've got Jurassic World Dominion. But I, the reason I bring it up is that it's bringing back Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. That is the death throes of a franchise. 
desperately clasping at any attempt to do anything. I don't care. I saw Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, great. Love Jurassic Park. I haven't seen Jurassic Park as a lost world. I I don't think it looks that good. Uh, Jurassic Park 3, I saw it in the cinema, but it's pretty, eh, that's the one with the talking velociraptor. Alan. Alan. Um, Jurassic World, I saw and I thought it was fine. It has that silly bit where she runs in the high heels with the T-Rex. But I love Jurassic World only for one reason. It's not even, I don't love the film. It's because when I went to see it, I saw it and there was like an eight-year-old behind me. And when the film finished, the eight-year-old turned to his mum and said, that's the best film I've ever seen. I was like, worth it. That's Um, what film, that's what like a Spielberg film is for. Exactly. Not that it was was Spielbergian film. Uh, I didn't see whatever was Paradise Lost, what was it called? Fallen Fallen Kingdom. Kingdom. And I heard it, yeah, I heard it really. I I was possibly going to see that, but I got put off by the trailer. That you know, it's about someone. The trailer actively puts you off because yeah. me and my friend were watching it, and then the trailer shows that they come off the island and go back to Earth, and there's like an auction, and there's like there's like dinosaurs in a house, and we were like, they're, they're we were whole, like, whoa, 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 what the fuck is this? We were thought we were staying on the island. It was it was sent at the last loads. It was in a house, and then like it, the whole plot point of we're going to weaponize the Velociraptors was always really boring to me as yeah. a plot point. Yeah, world world was like not great, but passable fun in yeah. the cinema. You could watch it and be like, yeah, yeah. dinosaurs thing. And then that was really bad. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree. Bringing those three back while tempting and it's probably going to get a cinema ticket is clutching at the last yeah. thing. Like, Because remember, World was a billion dollar film. I would rather see those three actors in a proper film. Yeah. Like a drama. I love Sam love Neill. I great. love Sam Neill. He's such a good actor. And Adrian Laura Dern Wilkins. is always great. And Goldblum, he is eccentric. He is aloof. He's, he's, he's actually bizarre. He's, he's weirder so, now. He's he is. so weird. But he was in Fallen Kingdom for a scene. Yeah, but yeah, and they really overemphasize how much like, he was in that uh, film. Well, we must life um, yeah. finds away. Uh, away. I would rather but he made a film park with these guys. One, I, I do. I think the first yeah, act of Park is one must of the best faster. first acts. Faster. Uh, it's one of the best first acts, in, like uh, structurally in terms of writing that I think I can think of. It's yeah. so clean. And when like the first act ends with that scene, it was like. How did you do this? And then what's face looks back? It's like, I'll show you. Boom, into yeah. act two. It's like so, so powerful. I want to see it deserves an a shark is broken version of Jurassic Park yeah, where it's really Sam cool. Neill, Jeff Goldblum, and Laura Dern oh, on like hanging the out in stage. the truck. Like, yeah. They got us back for the sequel. Really? Yeah. Thing. And like the kitchen like, scene, like iconic, like suspense. Iconic. Anyway, iconic yeah. For another day. Uh, coming into July, Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, yeah, you know, I. I Taika uh, Waititi back, I think. Yeah, so Marvel film. Yeah, I, I feel I, like it's very much a sequel to Ragnarok. Yeah, weirdly. Look, like the first two Thor films are kind of their own. Here's the thing about Taika Waititi. Because I think, I think you and I both will happily watch that film. We really much yeah. enjoyed it. But here's the thing about Taika Waititi. And Ragnarok was great. I like Taika Waititi. He makes some interesting films, but I'm worried that he will be um, unadulterated, unfiltered Taika Waititi. And that's when I struggle with him. In a okay. way, Taika Waititi, I feel, has actually regressed as a filmmaker instead of progressing. Mm. He made this film in 2010 called Boy, which is amazing. Not it's seen such it, a wonderful it. film, which is that. set in New Zealand and... Um, it's about like the, 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 this boy and his family and they have no mother. And then his dad, who's played by Taika Waititi, comes about out of prison. And what he achieves in his films is uh, a child's eyes perspective yeah. and a pair, an adult level's perspective and playing off the audience's perception of both. So you have the fun of the child's eyes, um, child eye, what? Can't say it. The child's eyes perception of the world. <laughs> And then you have the sadness of the of the. So he thinks his dad's come back to like visit him, but actually, yeah. as an audience, you realise that the dad has actually come back for a different reason. Um, and the way that Taiguatiti like draws on the childhood animation and the wonder of a child's imagination is Did it really Jojo Rabbit as well. Well, that's the thing. So so he st- he does it in Boy, beautiful film. He does it again in Hunt for the Wilder People, yeah, really nice. And he does it again in Jojo Rabbit. But what you find increasingly with those three films, as an example, is that 
he becomes more and more confident to just let himself go. And what Taika Waititi does is he doesn't know when not to make a joke. So there were times right. in Jojo Rabbit, which I got... Do you think because of the subject matter, it became difficult? Uh, so I don't much? know. I think he just always sees an opportunity. And, and I think the skill is as much saying, no, this is when you don't do a joke. Right, no, I Taika, see. Uh, Jojo Rabbit I found really strange because I enjoyed it and, and a lot of people... And then, but then there was this whole other separate conversation where people sort of really hated it. But that aside, like, there's bits in that in the third act where I'm like, okay, we are in Nazi Germany. Yeah. This is a tragic thing. And um, there's a scene where, like, the young Jojo wanders through this battlefield completely bewildered and lost mm. and there's people being shot and stuff around him and for me that's like a really important scene where you cut the, cut the jokes place. now right, yeah. you cut the jokes and you would really hit for the heart but they don't he go. He references a joke about Germans that happens before you have Rebel Wilson right. coming in like um, blowing up kids and it, and I'm just like oh just Tyke just, 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 just shut up for a minute <laughs> and let the emotion of the scene yeah. breathe um, so I'm just with context of Thor Love and Thunder I'm like I think I'll enjoy that but I'm worried it's going to be this be even more. Yeah, but I, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because I think he saved Thor, and I think he, yeah, he sure. he's given a lot of uh, comedic influence to the MCU, which I think has been good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm willing to give it a go. Um, into July, I know you're not a huge Potterhead, but Fantastic Beasts: The Secret Secrets of Dumbledore. I assume you're not interested. Well, no, no, I, I, not that I'm not interested. Three, I, Fantastic I Beasts three. I perfectly respect for the Potter franchise. Yep. Okay, I've only seen up to film four, and I've only read you're up a to fucking book, book four. Thank you, James. Um, but um, I've not heard good things about Fantastic Beasts, and particularly the second Fantastic Beasts I heard was really, really bad. One, I was like, I give you, I give you permission to continue. Yeah. I watched it. I was like, okay, yeah. uh, American plain stuff movie, is interesting, real plain movie. Two was so bad. Yeah. Like I remember, I was a water film where I end, it ended, and I was like, oh, it's over. That's, that's bad, the yeah. you know it's something to, to be said about films which you don't realize the pacing's so bad you don't realize it's over yeah and then you get there and you're like oh that's it yeah. um this one so johnny depp has been recast by mads mickelson yeah, which fine. i think will be pretty good yeah, fine. uh but yeah good just the, the second film was such a slog the first film had some really interesting themes in it i was like that's really clever it's very potter and i get it yeah um the two was just a huge mess there's this thing where it's like it's called fantastic beasts so we must get lots of like big beasts and, and yeah. we must always chase animals in this film and i wish it didn't feel the need to create a big spectacle yeah. and, and have so many scenes where I'm chasing down animals and trying to get them back in the box. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. I wish it hadn't been it's called not, Fantastic It's not Pokemon. Beasts. Yeah, because the main guy played by Eddie Redmayne, Newt's commander, his whole thing is that he's a magical beasts scholar. Yeah. Right? And, and he's, a, he's a great character, but I don't need every film to be about, oh, look at all these wonderful animals running yeah. around. Do you know Just what? focus I'm, on the cool shit. I'm always interested in how uh, we perceive films without seeing them. And I could tell from looking at the poster and the way that the second film was marketed <laughs> that, it, that it looked clueless because it was clear that we're keeping Eddie Redmayne and the characters from the first but film. He's not relevant. But he's not really the main character anymore. No, but they that, didn't know how to replace it. And they were like, uh, who because we, well, we've got Jude Law and his Dumbledore and they don't know how to balance And the it. title of this annoys me, calling it The Secrets of Dumbledore. Because I'm like, you're trying to fucking get yeah. me yeah. to see this yeah. film. Like, yeah. I want to know The Secrets yeah. of Dumbledore, but I really don't believe that they're going to be cool things. That and that and the Jurassic World one yeah. in, in the bin. Yeah, get yeah. out. But in detention. I am still so curious to learn more about the whole conflict between Dumbledore and Virginia. Grindelwald. Go and see it and tell us all about it. Yes, I will. I will. Um, this one, uh, come, still in July, Nope, which is Jordan Peele's new film, rumoured to be starring Daniel K. Lewis. I'll see it, whatever. Really I will, I will happily see it. see it. I love Get Out. I really liked Us. I know Us yeah. um, had I a little bit of flaw, but well, there is, yeah. I think Us is so fun and so effective. So I'd love to do a rewatch of both of those. I think that would be yeah. a really fun one to do. Yeah. Uh, September, we've got Mission Impossible 7. We already mentioned Tom Cruise, and we actually talked Happy about Mission Impossible. Happy to watch that. Absolutely. Again, like in. I said with the Top Gun Maverick thing, those films are like really well executed now, and they know what they're doing, and um, I think they, they usually deliver. So, yeah. Into October, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Less interesting. 
interested because um, as much as I love Paul Rudd and as much as I love the psychedelic effects of watching Ant-Man shrink down to like subatomic, yeah. I am not interested. I, d- I found Ant-Man and the Wasp a bit boring. Boring, really boring. And, um, you know, I guess I'll just see at the time. Going into October, uh, still in October, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2. Did you see Into the Spider-Verse L- 1? Loved, adored, adored it. That film. How good. That Everyone fil- go yeah. and see Into the Spider-Verse. Holy Please. shit. That, that, that film won a bloody Oscar for a reason, okay? Oh, that so is such good. a well-crafted, fun, enjoyable, because that's Lord and Miller, isn't it? Did they direct it or they produced it at least? I'd have to check. It's so fun and vibrant. And I've, never, oh. I've never seen anything like it, like I, visually. I, oh, I really, re- and it's just it's just so far removed from really what you think you of superhero films. I, I remember seeing the trailer and being like, oh, Pig, Spider-Man, all these things. I'm not sure I'm hilarious in. Hilarious though. If you want to see Nicolas Cage voice a version of Spider-Man yeah. and, then, and John Mulaney voice of Cartoon Pig, then bloody go and see this film. Really, really good. Um, in November, The Flash. Not interested. With, yeah. Tell you why I'm not interested in that. Not only have I zero interest in the DC yeah. world, um, and uh, I've seen clips- Ezra Miller from I've seen Justice clips League, of yeah. uh, Ezra Miller playing The Flash. It looks really annoying, but it's directed by Andy Muschietti. And Andy Muschietti did- um, it and it chapter two. Oh my now, god! It chapter. Wait, I yeah. liked it one. Yeah, I liked it one. I thought it was fine. It was stand by me with a clown. Fine, I liked it. it was very charming. <laughs> it by it chapter two took the fucking piss. It was three hours long. It was two hours and fifty minutes. I saw that with my cousin, yeah. and he, I was literally going in. He said, "You know, it's three hours long." I was like. Yeah. No, no, it's yeah. three hours long. I was like, shut up. Yeah. This yeah. film's three hours yeah. long. Is it Return of the King? Yeah. What the, yeah. what the fuck it are they doing no in this film? It had no justification to do that. It had no right to do that. It, had, it, 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 it completely misjudged our, our, like, our, um, uh, the amount of uh, love we had there for that so kind of characters. There were so many sequences. So many fear. Hor- anyway. Dire, dire, dire. So I will not see that film. We're nearly done. Uh, into November, I know another comic book film, but Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Uh, I, you know, I guess I'll see it. I mean, yeah. I actually, you know, look, I, I thought Black Panther was fine, but I appreciate, I respect its position and I, I respect R- the fact really that it, cool. you know, it connected with so many people. So Yeah, thought it was a fine movie, but fine. I thought it was more, it was really cool to see yeah. like, I would be people represented yeah. in that film in a way that never done before. I would be interested to see what they do, obviously, without Sam and Chadwick really Boseman. Yeah, yeah, no Chadwick Boseman. Um, and then the final one in December, which will be a big film, Avatar 2 is coming, meant to be coming in December next year. I feel like we, I, are, we are getting that sequel Avatar this two, many years later. Avatar 2 is the bus that never arrives. It is the, it is the, <laughs> it is the thing that just like, you just never arrives. Look, so, uh, that, so just before you go, there are four, there are four, they have shot four films. So Avatars 2, 3, 4, and 5 together. I'm going to say a bold claim. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Look, I've seen Avatar two, once at home. I know people right. say, it is strange because people said to me, well, you're a big fan of cinema. Why didn't you go see Avatar at the time? It never appeals to me. I also, I also looked a bit silly. Look, and right. I did see it and I thought it was, I thought it was, it was fine. Yeah, and it was a solid. Good it film. was solid. Yeah. Solid. But, but you know, it's a bit silly at yeah. times, but like, okay, it was, it was better than I thought it would be, but it's still not amazing. And it was the massive hype. And now it, it's a December, 2022 will be 13 years after the original. That's 07. No, it came out in 09. 09. 13 from 2022, yeah, James. Is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what year is it? So, um, it's just uh, worth mentioning because yeah. that film, regardless of what we think- It's still it, the it biggest was, film of all time. Uh, uh, Endgame no, no, is more no, than No, it. it took you back. I think- Ingo, Oh, uh, did they re-release? Ever, oh, Ever talk re-released in China, I think. Oh, so obviously, fine. fine. Okay, so it's, it's in so many ways, the highest grossing film that's ever come out. Like you can't, you can't not acknowledge that yes. for what it is. Regardless of what we think, we are going to get, for looking in the next five years, we're going to get one of these every yeah. year or every two years. Like we will be inundated with these. Yeah. I hope they're good. Like I don't want to, yeah. if we're going to get loads of them and everyone's going to be seeing them, I really hope it's worth seeing. And maybe he has spent the past decade, because that was the last, I don't think James Cameron's made a film since, right? He, <sighs> uh, he was. I think he's been working on that all this time. I think you're right. I mean, he might have made a couple of nature documentaries about 
deep sea diving didn't he do something in a module but like if he spent all this time thinking and writing about it then sure if you think back to 2009 the effects that Avatar had was every bloody film was in 3D you couldn't go see a film unless it was like a comedy without it being in 3D and since that film has come out we have come full circle and completely rejected 3D you cannot now I'm pretty sure you can't see a film if you were growing up as a film fan in the last decade you would have known like Glasses. But also, you were aware of Mark Kermode, but passionately being against 3D yeah. and giving the reasons why 30% light loss, all these reasons. It and, really was light loss, yeah. and, and it was and it was rubbish. It was rubbish. I'm, and, and and he was right. And yeah. yes, it's for the because consumers were just like, why am I paying more for this shit? Yeah, there were there were a small handful of films which I think did good 3D. I think Gravity was one of them. Where I was like, that really enhanced yeah. the film. But other than that. A lot of films didn't shoot in 3D, but yep. added 3D in post for the extra one pound fifty it added to the cinematic. Oh, yeah. I remember Man of Steel. So cynical. Man of Steel did that, and it was just bad. It wasn't proper 3D. It was just like a little bit of like depth, and sometimes it results in blurriness. But yeah. I'm interested to see if he's gonna really go for it or lean on the current trend, which is to shoot large format or IMAX yeah. and and do that. So, if all people to change it up. It will be him. So I'm interested to see what he's going to do. Directors would like switch positions. So like, let's get Christopher Nolan to do Avatar. Yeah. Let's get James Cameron to do, I don't know, the Oppenheimer film. Or like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, James Cameron to do Tenet again or something. Yeah. yeah. But whether we like it or not, those, that film, not that film, those films are coming and assuming it doesn't get delayed. There's also, this time next year we'll be seeing. You know, let us know what you're excited about. Uh, let us know. It's a little sneak peek what you next see. year. Yeah, and I'm sure there's many more surprises. That, that those were mostly big budget blockbusters. You know what, of all the ones there you, are going to be so many more great ones. Of all the ones you said off the top of my head, the one I'm most excited about is Jordan Peele's one. No, yes, yeah, yeah, me too. Me too.